Hey everybody. I am uh, so grateful to be given the chance to preach again and uh, speak to you on this passage in John 20. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity. We're continuing on in this book of John that we've been in the past six weeks. And uh, we're picking up right where we left off last week after Mary has discovered an empty tomb and has had this encounter with the living Jesus, right? Uh, I, I love this text. I love this text because I think it gives us snapshots of a life in faith post-resurrection. It's kind of right... Act one uh, of, a, of, a, of a literary work is where we're kind of introduced to the characters, where we're learning who people are and what their motivations are, and the, it's the brimming of conflict. Act two is often where we see the conflict come to rise. Uh, at the end of act two, it's often like the dark night of the soul. Uh, that might be the, the, the death of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And then act three is where things begin to get resolved, where the climax happens and we're starting to see what victory might look like, what the end of our story is. And we are firmly in Act 3 at the end of John 20. So a little recap of where we've been in this text, right? So uh, in the beginning of Chapter 20 of John, Mary has run to the empty tomb. She has found, she has found the tomb empty and the stone rolled away. And we get Peter and John accompanying and running after her, seeing this tomb is empty. And Mary meets someone at this tomb and is crying and weeping because she can't find Jesus. And uh, she mistakes this man to be a gardener, but in reality it's Jesus. And, and Mary is, finally comes to an understanding of who this man is, that this is Jesus, and realizes that Jesus has come back, to de come back from the dead. And uh, Mary comes to the disciples and shares this news. So the, the disciples are anxiously waiting to understand what is happening here. They have not yet seen Jesus, but they have heard this news that Jesus is raised from the dead. Um, and we pick up here. Uh, on the evening of that first day, the disciples are together. Uh, and it, it shares this moment that they are in this room with the doors locked. Right? Uh, there is this reality that uh, Jesus has been killed for, for like these religious crimes by the religious authorities around him. And as his disciples, they are also in danger. They followed the man that the authorities put to death. So they are hiding out in this place. And I think what's actually very sad about this moment for the disciples is, after Passover for Jewish folks, uh, they have a seven-day celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is it's kind of like Passover, it's a part of the festivities, but it's these seven days of often people are off from work, families have traveled to Jerusalem to be together. It's this like huge cultural celebration, it's one of the biggest, most important times of the year. And yet the disciples are not able at all to participate in these festivities, are not able to participate in this heritage of theirs, and instead they're hiding out in this room, right? And I think we, in the past two years, have experienced a similar, like, cultural collective experience of needing to be locked away, needing to be distanced from one another for, for safety reasons, to, to protect one another, to protect ourselves. And uh, it's this moment of kind of like um, a disintegration of identity of who they are and, and their safety and well-being. Uh, they're locked away. And it's why I love Jesus' first words to them. In this moment of being in a place of fear and uncertainty, 
the first words that Jesus gives to the disciples are, peace be with you. And I love these words for two reasons. The first thing is that Jesus knows what the disciples need. What they need is peace, right? He doesn't condemn them for their fear or their worry or their concern. He doesn't say, like, you know, get over it, move on, go out and get to work. But he says, peace be with you. I'm offering you peace. I want to give you peace. And that's what he, he offers them, right? The second reason I love this phrase here is because peace be with you is, uh, is a, Jewish, a Jewish term, shalom, right? It's this greeting that, uh, that Jewish people would give one another upon seeing each other, especially around the holidays. It's like Merry Christmas or He is Risen around Easter, right? And I'm thinking about these disciples who have been hiding out for the past three, four days, right, after Jesus is arrested. And for Jesus to come to them and give them this cultural greeting, right, to give them this thing that they've been deprived of for so long, it's like this reinstating of their identity as well. Shalom, he says to them as he, as he, as he sees them. It's this, like, when they were deprived of community, when they were deprived of relationship to the people around them, Jesus comes and brings that back to them. It's the first words he says. And I love that in his resurrection, the first thing Jesus does is to give peace and identity to his disciples. It's a beautiful vision. And uh, we see this, this transformation in the, in the disciples, right? They are, they're locked away in fear, and they move to this place of joy, overjoyed, as they see the Lord, right? Uh, it's, the, it's the gift that we get to often experience, right? In the times of our faith where we feel locked away, where uh, fear is overwhelming us and gripping us. Uh, when we get a glimpse of Jesus in that moment, there is this experience of being overjoyed. And Jesus then moves on in this moment to do this very strange thing. Uh, uh, we're all wearing masks, so we wouldn't do this, but we, he breathes on the disciples. Uh, it's such a weird little, little thing that happens. He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, now, if you were here last time I preached uh, on John 15, you know how I feel about Genesis and John and the way that they interplay with each other. John's a poet. He loves poetry. He loves language. He's playing with it, and he's using and alluding to things in the past. And one of the most famous poems in the Bible, in the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, is Genesis 1 and 2. And I think, again, this is a little bit of an allusion we're seeing to Genesis 2, right? Uh, Jesus comes in verse 22, and he says, he breathes on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 2, uh, verse 7, it says, in the creation narrative, when God creates man out of dust, what it says is, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. There's this beautiful moment where, in John 15, right, we talked a little bit about how uh, in Genesis 2, God plants a garden, right? And in John 15, Jesus says, you are the, the branches, I am the vine. It's this replanting of this garden that we see in Genesis 2. In John 20, right, Genesis 2, we see the creation of man, this life-giving breath of God into man. And I think we're getting this recreation of people in, Gen in John 20. 
as, God, as Jesus comes and breathes on them and says, I am giving you life. In your place of fear, uncertainty, and concern, I am breathing new life into you. It's his recreation. It's, it's John alluding to this idea of these are people who are dead in fear, who are dead in sin, who are dead and without hope, and I'm breathing life into them. That, that word spirit in, in Genesis, the word spirit, breath, wind, these are all like the same word. It's the same language that's being used. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is this breath of life that Jesus gives his disciples. He fills them with this beautiful life. And I think uh, it's this incredible, amazing thing uh, that, that God is doing for, for his people again. This recreation, this re-narrativizing of, of the situation that the disciples are in. And uh, it's a powerful experience for them. But we continue on because what happens in this chapter is that not all the disciples are there. Ten of the disciples experience this incredible encounter with Jesus but one doesn't. Thomas. Thomas is not there. We're not sure why Thomas is not there, but he, he hears about this experience. And really, I think, you know, sometimes a lot of the Bible wants to give us moral precepts and give us, like, what to do and how to live and how to live a righteous life that is centered around Jesus. I think about parables a lot. Like, in parables, it's often written out very clearly. A wise man built a house upon a rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? Very clearly, the Bible, like, Jesus is inviting us into one of those people. He wants us to be like one of them and not like the other. And I think sometimes, though, we kind of overstretch that moralizing, like, principle in the text, and we're like, yeah, don't be like this guy. And I think Thomas gets a bad rap a lot of the time. We call him Doubting Thomas. Like, I, I, he's one of the, te- the 11 disciples who follow Jesus, and we, we call him Doubting Thomas. That's such a mean way to describe someone, I think. It's not nice. But I think we sometimes moralize this passage, right? Where we're like, don't be like Thomas. He's a bad guy. But he's just asking for the same experience that these disciples have seen, right? The, the disciples in verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. Thomas just wants that experience for himself. He wants to know. He wants to believe. He wants that experience of joy. I think, like, so much of our Christian lives in the church, in modern Christianity, are often built on second-hand spiritual experiences, right? We're told to read a book. We're told to listen to a sermon. We're told to participate in a worship service of, of someone else's words and someone else's experience. But I think what Thomas, like, yes, Thomas is doubting, but what he's yearning for is a spiritual experience with God with Jesus. And I think it's actually the right thing to do here. His doubt is actually a yearning for more of Jesus, for an experience with him. And I think there's something that we can take from that, right? Of not settling for just a second-hand account of what Jesus is like, but actually wanting a first-hand experience. Whether we do that in silence and in prayer and in scripture on ourselves, there's, a, there's something about Thomas that I, I admire, in his desire, and is not settling for for just a second-hand experience of Jesus, but desiring more. And I think I think that's something that that we can aspire to as well. So uh, so Thomas is doubting; he's unsure, and he makes these demands about I also want to experience this, right? I want to experience this as well. And uh, again, we 
a week passes now, and Thomas is still with the disciples. So even though he's doubting, he is still with his people. He is still ingrained in his community and, and committed to them, right? So Thomas now is with the disciples, and I love the fact that in verse 26, John gives us this uh, little detail in the text. So a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. So the disciples already know that Jesus is resurrected. They know for a fact that somehow Jesus has, like, beaten the big bad, and he's experienced some, some power that has allowed him to raise from the dead. And yet they're still hiding in the room. Right? Like, I think sometimes we... We can overpromise a little bit about what a life with faith is like. Mm-hmm. And we might say things like, Jesus will give you this breakthrough and there will be this experience of like in- immense salvation in your life. But what I love about this text is it's a snapshot of what life with faith is sometimes like. Of We know that Jesus is raised from the dead, from reliable, re- from reliable witnesses, from like the experiences of others, We've had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. He is clearly raised from the dead. We know that he is Lord of all and he has the power to defeat death. But at the same time, like the realities of our trials and tribulations, of the suffering that we're experiencing, whether it's persecution, whether it's hardship, right? The disciples, the problems they're facing from, their, from the systems around them, from the threats of the Jewish authorities, from the Roman oppression, right? Those powers, like, are still affecting them and impacting them. They still need to hide in this moment. They're still afraid. Like, Jesus is raised from the dead. That doesn't mean the disciples can't die, right? Like, that doesn't solve all of their problems immediately. And I think that's why it's important to understand what the resurrection is actually doing for the disciples, right? It's... I love the way that scripture talks about what Jesus has done to death, right? Jesus has defeated death. Jesus has disarmed death, right? It's not this, like, Jesus got rid of death. Death isn't gone. There's a new way that we experience and relate to death in the power of the gospel. Death is disarmed, right? That's the invitation of a life with Jesus. When, when uh, Jesus in this passage says, uh, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, it's this invitation into the way of Jesus. In the, in the same way that the Father sent me to face death, I am sending you to face death, right? Jesus is the life of discipleship that Jesus promised us, promises us is not a life away from death or avoiding death or like completely ignoring death, but towards death without fear. It's with joy and expectation, hope and faith that we can face the deaths of our lives. Um, I think for us, this locked room experience post-resurrection, it can be the experiences of a recurrent illness that we can't, seem to, we can't seem to cure, we can't seem to get over. It can be the broken relationships in our family and with our friends, right? There's, there are deaths that we just can't avoid. But what the resurrection does for us, what this life-breathing power of the Holy Spirit, it does for us, it gives us a new image of death. That death is not this thing to avoid or be afraid of or rage against, but to maybe maybe it's an over it's an overstatement to say embrace, but it's a way that we can face it without fear because it's been disarmed. 
the new life that Jesus has given us allows us to grieve the deaths of life, to, to suffer the deaths of life, to, to feel the full feelings that that might give us, but to, to know on the other side there is resurrection, whatever that might look like. There is rebirth. There's a re-giving of the Spirit of God, of the Spirit of life to us. Amen. We, can, we, can, we can rest assured in that. So, um, Jesus appears once again before them, and again, for the third time, he says, peace be with you. He gives them the shalom one more time, and he looks to Thomas, and he says, touch my side, put your hands, uh, see my hands, right? Uh, and he gives him this, this statement, stop doubting and believe. Um, again, I think we're very, very quick to judge Thomas, but, uh, if, uh, so I'm a South Indian. My parents are from a state of India called Kerala. And uh, in Kerala, we have a little bit of an admiration, maybe borderline obsession with Thomas. And I want to <laughs> sh- share a little bit about that with you. Because uh, my, dad, my, dad na- my dad's name is Thomas. My middle name is Thomas. Uh, at my wedding, there were multiple people who were invited, whose names were Thompson Thomas, which again is son of Thomas Thomas. Uh, my wife, when she saw that, she was like, this is a mistake, right? This can't be someone's name. And I'm like, no, this is, we, we really like Thomas. Uh, and, and the reason we like Thomas so much is the, the church history, there's a, in the early, like, first millennia, like we're talking 200, 100 AD, there was this community of believers that developed called Marthama, the Marthama Church. Uh, Martha, Martha means like the church of St. Thomas. And obviously we can't confirm what happened, but the story goes is that St. Thomas went from Ju- like Jerusalem to South India and planted a church and started a church there. And uh, we love Thomas for that. There have been centuries, like millennia, of Christians in India because of this heritage of a faith that came from St. Thomas, whether it was him or his disciples. We love Thomas. Uh, And uh, what I love about Jesus and Thomas in this passage again is that Jesus does not admonish him, actually. He doesn't, like, condemn him. When he says stop doubting and believe, he's just asking Thomas to, like, follow through on that promise that he made. He said, if I see it, I will believe. And, And Thomas does. Thomas says... You are like you are my Lord and my God. It's this admission of faith of as he, he asked and was desperately yearning for this experience with Jesus, and Jesus gave it to him out of his generosity. And the reason why I think like Thomas's relationship to India is so interesting is because Indians don't have much of a like connection to Rome or to Jewish tradition. And, like, I think this blessing that he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, it's so interesting that Thomas brought, is said to have brought the gospel to this remote place that's not connected to these things, right? It's almost like this blessing that Jesus gave to Thomas. Like, Thomas paid it forward. He passed it along. Um, I think this, like, yeah, this blessing is not an admonishment of the way that Thomas believes. I think Thomas is actually someone we can yearn to be more like. Uh, but I think it is a way of the way that Thomas and I think us, we can live our faith out of people can see Jesus through us. We can be that first, second-hand account for people. Uh, it can be the first place that plants a seed for their first-hand experience, right? And I think that's the invitation of this passage here is, yes, uh, people will be blessed 
not just because they have seen, you know, they have seen Jesus directly, but because they've believed through our words, mm -hmm. through our actions, and through our life, in the way that we are sent to them out of this passage. So, uh, what does a resurrection life look like in John 20, right? It's, it's that ability to face death, to, to be in a locked room, and to ask Jesus for an encounter, to ask Jesus for a first-hand experience. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying that I love when we think about the resurrection, because, um, yeah, so much of the gospel can get kind of, can get muddied and forgotten, but uh, something I'd love to say, something I've loved, heard, said to me, has been that, the power of the resurrection, the power of the gospel, is not to make bad people good. Its, it's goal is not to make bad people good or have people who do bad things do good things. The goal of the gospel is to make dead people alive. Mm -hmm. And it's, the, it's this invitation in this passage is that in their fear, in their like uncertainty around death, in their worry about the things that are coming their way, uh, the thing that, ju that Jesus gives them is not a moral precept to follow. He gives them peace and life. And it's to hang on to this life and this hope of resurrection that allows us not to avoid death, not to run away from death, but to face death, right? So I, I, I want us to think about our lives in the places that we are experiencing death, that we are burdened by the realities of death, um, that we are burdened by disease, by pain, by hurt relationships, by... Yeah, hardship, financial difficulties, right? Where, where are you facing death? And how does this resurrection power allow you to, to face it head on, to walk toward it in the way of Jesus? Uh, and how, where might you be like Thomas, needing that first-hand experience in that context? Jesus does not condemn us in our locked room fear-like place, right? He doesn't condemn us or admonish us, but he instead imparts peace on us and gives us that first-hand experience. So let's ask, let's be like Thomas and doubt in the way that demands, in the way that is still in community and is asking God, I need an encounter with you in this place. Let's, let's be like Thomas there. Doubting Thomas might be someone we might actually want to be like. Uh, so with that, let me enter into a time of prayer for us and bless us into the way of Thomas, into the way of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for your resurrection power. Lord, uh, allow us to experience your resurrection in the fullness that it is. That it is not a quick band-aid on our problems. It is not, it is not a, a quick solution to issues, but it is actually a rebirthing of life in us. That you are breathing life into us. It's CPR. You are making us alive again. So in our fear, in our uncertainty, would we hear the soothing words that you speak? Peace be with you. In the power of your, of your resurrection, in, in your power to disarm, to defang, to declaw death, would we experience peace even as we walk towards death, even as we face our deaths? Uh, and would our life of peace, of stillness, of joy in the midst of things that shouldn't be joyful, would that be a witness to those around us? Would we be able to bless, bless people like Thomas did, that people 
people would not see, but they would still believe because of what they've experienced through us. So Lord, send us out as you have sent us. And yeah, even today, would we experience your breath upon us. We pray this in your name. Amen.